Dr. Kinsa Gunther, sports psychologist to the stars, right? To the people. <laughs> I appreciate you so much being on the show with us. Dr. Kinsa, what's your revolution? Revolution, 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 revolution. You know, when I, when I knew that you were going to ask me this question, like I looked up the word revolution and was like, how am I going to answer this? Um, but I, I think my revolution, um, definitely over the last year, my revolution has been the the art of unlearning, right? Yeah, it's interesting, right? What does that even mean? So um, I had a very prescribed notion of what success looked like, what my life looked like. It was very busy going from this place to that place. And I had this idea that that um, my journey through life was supposed to look a certain way. And I think what I've had to do is unlearn a lot of prescribed notions about what life is supposed to look like in order to embrace and accept life as it comes, right? Because I think that sometimes when we hold on to expectations or some scripted version of what of how we think things are supposed to unfold, that can get in the way of us truly embracing the moments that we find ourselves in. And so for me, I describe that as a process of unlearning, of letting go of um, what I thought in order to embrace what actually is. And so that's my revolution is shifting from a place of trying to control and prescribe everything to trying my best to live in a place that allows me to be flexible um, and responsive to the moment and understanding that my ability to adjust is oftentimes much more important than my ability to control. So that's my revolution. Can I have your attention for a moment? What's good, revolution? Welcome to the What's Your Revolution show. I show four men and the people who love them, where we discuss how men can find and embrace the revolution within themselves. I am your host, Dr. Charles Corpru. What's good, revolutionaries? I hope all is well with you. Hoping that you are doing your thing. We are entering the spring season. The winter in some parts of the country have beat us down along with our racial pandemic and and then our medical pandemic. But as I said a couple weeks ago, there's some sort of a light. And we are hoping that we find time where we can be in space together, that we can find camaraderie. And as I say, community is the new social capital. What this pandemic has taught us is that we need each other. We need that space. We need that time, whether it's on Zoom, whether it's on a social distance with our frat brothers and friends and family, whoever the community is, that you can find some space. If you haven't, revolutionaries, find your community. Find your tribe. It is important to your mental health. It is important to your physical health. And sometimes we get in our head, revolutionaries. We think that, you know, I've got to go out. I've got to meet new people. What if they don't like me? What if I don't fit in? You know what? So what? Life is about trying. Life is about experimenting. Not every group is, you know, is going to be your group. Not every person is going to be your person. But when you do find that tribe, when you do find your people, you will find bliss. You will find joy. You will find those people that will endear you, that will bring you in and say, where have you been all of our lives? Because revolutionaries, you bring so much to the table and you can bring your revolution to them and they can bring their revolutions to you and you can grow. So as we see light, as we see light, I ask that you get out. 
one of the biggest things about moving home that I worried about was finding my tribe. You know, I always have the bras. The bras are going to be anywhere. And they were like, damn, corporate, here you go talking about those damn omegas again. Yes, I am. Every week, somehow I'm going to bring in my illustrious fraternity. But one of the things my chapter was doing is that they were cycling. And in New Orleans, I didn't get a chance to bring the bras into this. But my chapter brothers and some brothers in the area of Norfolk, Virginia, and Virginia Beach were cycling. And so I got to pull out my bike. And that has been my community. That has been my people. Corey Doolittle, Jahari Hemphill, Arthur Graham, Tariko Henderson, Brian Irving, the host of Bruz, Brother Roku, Spring 83, New Psy, Mike Lawton, a host of brothers that have just in, endeared me into this, this tribe of brothers who go out every week, who push each other, who say, brother, you can push a little harder. You can be better. You can be revolutionary. And so I, I say thank you to all of you who have made my life better, who have given me a tribe. But one of the things that tribes can do for you revolutionaries is that they can be a catalyst for you. They can be a catalyst for thought. And my dear brother, Corey Doolittle said, you know, I love your show. I started listening to your show. It gives me an opportunity to ask this most thought provoking question. And as we get out on each Saturday morning, you know, how do I get motivated? I'm a weekend warrior. How do I find that get up to push better, to be better, to look better, to be there for my kids, for my wife? And I said, you know what, let, let me go out and see if there's someone that I could talk to about this motivation. It's not in my purview. I'm not a sports psychologist. And so I began doing my homework. And thank you. Thank you, Brother Doolittle, for this push. And I said, who's out there? And the first name that came up was this sister, <laughs> this queen. Right. And, you know, wait, like, wait, revolutionaries, you got a sister on? Yes. Yes. We brought a sister on <laughs> a dope, a dope Sora of Delta Sigma Theta, Dr. Kinsa Gunther, you know, who is a sports psychologist and like one of the foremost authorities in sports psychology in her field down in Atlanta. And I was like, I want to talk to this sister. And we got on the phone and we just had a good time. So, Dr. Kinsa, welcome to the What's Your Revolution show. How are you? Thank you so much. Hello, hello. It is a pleasure for me to be here, and, and thank you for that wonderful introduction. I'm I'm doing well today. I'm I'm doing well, and like I said, just happy to be here and looking forward to our talk. I I am too. I'm I'm definitely looking forward to that. I'm going to ask you our signature question in a, in a few moments. But the, the interesting thing, and we talked about this earlier, Doc, is that this field of sports psychology, and I began looking and it, it, it's a robust field, but I, when I began looking, Doc, there wasn't, it didn't seem like it was a whole lot of us in this field. But when I look around at, you know, the NFL, the NBA, when I even look at baseball, different things like that, there are a lot of people of color. And you would think that they would be looking for a person of color who's a sports psychologist. How do, so one, why isn't there or is there, and we're just not seeing that, an abundance of sports psychologists that are people of color. And two, if you wanted to get into this field, how could you? So both great questions. I think I might start with just the definition of what sports psychology is first, because I think that for some, they hear that term and a lot of different things come up, but I just want to level set so that everybody's on the same page as we're talking about that. And so when we talk about sports psychology, what we really are talking about is um, the art and science of mental performance, right? 
And that mental performance can include uh, attending to one's mental health, but it also includes, and, and really more traditionally, it includes teaching mental skills to allow people to achieve excellence and to perform their best when they need to the most, right? And so that's really what the field of sports psychology is. It is applying psychological principles to help us develop the mental side of our game, whatever our game may be. And certainly we use this with athletes and performers, but you can also use this in any space where you have to compete or perform, whether we're talking about um, executives or those who are working in any capacity where there's an expectation, there may be some pressure, they have to perform. You can benefit from making sure that your mind is in the game as well, right? And so in, in regards to where are they, right? Like looking around, it feels as though it's a very homogenous group of professionals that make Field, you know, if I'm being 100% honest, certainly when the field started, it was heavily dominated um, by white males in particular. They, they were the individuals who helped to create the field and they were the ones who were really um, visible within it. But over the last several years, um, we certainly have seen a shift and there are more uh, clinicians and consultants of color who are engaging in sports psychology work. Um, Here in the States, there's an organization called the Association for Applied Sports Psychology. And that's where you can find uh, the the largest collection of professionals here in the States. There are also a couple of other organizations here as well. And there are several international organizations that cater to sports psychology where there's a diversity of professionals there as well. So we're here, but the field itself is still young. It's still kind of up and coming. People are just now really starting to pay attention to it because there's this increased focus on mental health and wellness in general. But we're definitely out here and, and we are... Um, serving different populations from youth sports to elite sports, right? Um, The question on how you can become a sports psychologist, um, that's a more complicated question, but I will say it's, it's, it definitely, there's training and education involved. It's a combination of taking certain courses and also engaging in uh, a practicum experience so that you gain experience doing the work before you go out and provide services to athletes and performance populations. So the combination of education um, and applied experience. And there's more information on the website for ASK, the Association for Applied Sports Psychology, which can give you more details about what that process could look like. Gotcha. No, I, I definitely appreciate that, Doc. Um, what, I'm, what I'm thinking now, and, and you talk about the, the mental practices that allow you to achieve your best self. And I think about Raheem Thomas, who was on the show, author of About That Life, talked about self-actualizing. And that there are, are there these barriers that we have to overcome to really get to that point where we are that two percent, as Maslow talked about, of being that healthiest, you know, most prominent, most effective version of ourselves. Sure. And it began to make me think, like, okay, I'm that person. I'm an athlete, and so we're gonna, you know, <laughs> this is always the fun part. That mm-hmm. I'm I'm an athlete, and I'm struggling. I, I'm struggling, and I look up and I find Dr. Dr. Kinsa Gunther and I schedule an appointment with you. What is that going to look like for us? You know, what is, you know, and, and I'm doing this because I want people to think about the power of therapy one and then the applied nature of this type of therapy. What does that look like if I come in and I'm a world-class athlete, but I'm struggling, I'm not performing as well. You know, I'm not making the podium, but even though I have the talents and skills, right? I'm floundering. What happens in that setting with you? 
Yeah. So here's the first thing that has to happen before that setting, right? Is this, there has to be a level of self-awareness for the person to understand that what's happening with you physically affects your performance, but what's happening with you mentally also affects your performance. And I think in the land of elite performance, we have historically spent so much time attending to the physical elements of performance, the strength, the endurance, the flexibility, the, the mechanics, the technical skills that we have, so much so that there was a time when I don't think people really thought about how is my mind affecting my performance. So that's the first thing is recognizing that if we are talking about performance, we need to be looking at how is your mind impacting your game as well as how are you physically showing up to compete and perform. Once there is this acceptance, right, that my mental health is a foundation for elite performance, then that can open someone up to actually making that phone call and reaching out to me. And so if someone reaches out and they're an elite level performer and they are struggling, right, and they need assistance, the first thing is, is I, performance in, in whatever sport they participate in is what they do. For me, that is a person a human who is reaching out, who is looking for support and help because there's something that they're going through that they can't quite navigate on their own. So that's the first approach that I think is really important to tell people and let people know is that we as therapists, we as mental performance consultants, we respect the humanity and the humanness of the people who are seeking our services. So the first thing is we're going to treat you like a person who is trying to thrive in some area of your life but it's having a bit of a hard time doing that. And so what it looks like is you make that phone call, you come into my office. Yes, my office does have a proverbial couch. Um, if we were in a time when you could come in, but right now what it would look like is a consultation via a telehealth platform, have to respect the times that we're in, but it involves that first appointment would involve a conversation, right? It would involve me getting to know a little bit more about you, what your concerns are, so that I can cultivate an individualized plan to help address what your concerns are. It also includes, there's some paperwork that has to be signed and completed, but it also includes a conversation about confidentiality because confidentiality is at the cornerstone of the work that we do. Whether I'm engaging with someone as it relates to dealing with mental health issues, if I'm engaging in mental presentation, it's all confidential because that allows you to feel like this is a space that is safe, that you can trust, that is designed to give you something, right? And not take more from you like a lot of the elite athletes and performers that we work with, people are constantly taking from them. This is a space that's designed to give to you. So getting through all that logistics, stressing confidentiality, and literally having a conversation to better understand what your concerns are, what may be impacting you, and then creating an individual plan to help us both determine how to best move forward and help you. Right. I think about this over, overall, particularly for Black men and our reticence, and I say our are because even though I'm a psychologist, you know, you you know, there are these things and times where I'm like I know I need to talk to my therapist, but mm, I don't know where I'm gonna go, uh -huh. you know. And then there's this reticence, you know. I, and and tell me if I'm wrong here, Doc. There may be this reticence around seeing a sports psychologist because I am a black man. I am this elite athlete. Nothing's supposed to be wrong, right? right. And what, a, what an inaccurate and unhealthy myth that is, right? That I am, I am human, but I'm never supposed to experience stress or adversity. Or if I do, I'm supposed to be able to deal with it all on my own, right? In your intro, you talked about the importance of tribe and community, the importance of having your people around you. But it is so interesting that we do have 
certain cultural groups within our society who have received this message that if you are struggling, you're supposed to do so in silence, in isolation and alone. And it is stigmatizing to reach out for help, right? And so I certainly recognize that in, in particularly we're talking about black folks, there's a stigma that exists as it relates to seeking therapy. There's a stigma for many groups of color that, that, that exists around stigma. And certainly if you put the intersection of culture and racial identity, black with gender identity, men with the role that they may play elite performer or athlete, that combination, each one of those groups individually has been told that you're supposed to be able to suck it up, handle it, and basically be invincible, right? And so I recognize that there's a stigma there. Um, but I also recognize that stigma sometimes exists because we don't understand something, right? And because we don't recognize the value and the benefit of it, right? And because we have received messages about what it is or what it isn't. But what I would say is you would not sit at home, you would not break your arm and then go home, wrap it up, and just wait for it to get better, right? You would not be at home dealing with some physical ailment that was beyond your capacity to manage and stay at home and say, I'll just see what happens, right? You would go and see someone about that. If you had a broken arm, you would go and see a doctor, despite your reluctance. So I say if you have a fractured spirit, or if you have a fractured emotion, you're in a fractured emotional state, or you're just at a time where you don't know what to do and you would like to speak to someone. That's what consultants are for. That's what therapists are for. Um, and so I think to, to combat the stigma, we have to provide more education. We have to help people understand that there are therapists that look like you, but we have to also help uh, people understand that in your humanity, asking for help is a sign of courage, not a sign of weakness, right? And to push yourself beyond the stigma to try to access a resource that could be really helpful for you in the same way that you would utilize other resources, right? To give yourself that chance to, to receive that benefit and that resource. What I love is the analogy that you gave, Doc, is that if you broke your arm, you would be running. You would be run. You run. Oh, you know what? My, my arm's falling off, but you know what? But you know what? I'm just going to put an ace bandage on it, you know, drink some ginger ale, you know, lay on the couch and it's going to be all good. No, it's not. Pour some tussing on it. Yeah, get some tussing. That's not that's not what's going to help. Right. But again, we can't see emotional distress. Right. In the way we can see a fracture in a bone. Right. We can't see the, the effects of different events in our lives in the way we can see other physical ailments and symptoms. So I get it, right? Like that, the things that we can't see are really hard for us to understand, but in being human, right? Here's the thing, we all have mental health, all of us, every single one of us, because mental health involves your ability to feel as though you can thrive, set goals and reach your potential. Mental health includes the ability to be able to connect with others, to feel like you can be productive. So we all have mental health. We don't all have mental illness, right? We all experience stress. We all go through adversity in life. We all have things that sometimes are beyond our capacity to manage on our own, which is why we have a tribe. But we all have mental health and we all need to be attentive to it. In terms of mental illness, one in five adults in the United States in any given year has a diagnosable mental health condition or mental illness. So we don't all have that, but we all have mental health and we all could benefit from using and accessing help from time to time. Yeah, I, I love that, that we all have mental health. And we don't always have mental illness and we have the ability to intersect it, to offset that, to get in the middle of that, that, that kind of 
I don't want to say that ridge between mental health and mental illness to get in there. Well, here's the thing. Mental health is a continuum, right? Mental health itself is a continuum that includes both wellness and illness. Mm -hmm. The reason that the stigma exists is because when we say the term mental health, people often think about mental illness. What they don't think about is mental wellness, which is also a component of mental health. So a part of that education is talking to people about the wellness aspect and helping them understand the continuum, right? And similar to physical health, it's a continuum as well. That includes illness and wellness, right? But if I have a cold, I don't feel like I've lost my physical health forever, right? I recognize that that's a situational thing that I need to manage in order to regain my health fully. Same thing. There are events that happen in life, the loss of a loved one, navigating this global pandemic that we're in and the racial pandemic on top of that, right? There are things that happen in life um, that affect us. Just because they affect us, that doesn't make us ill. It just may mean we need some additional support to manage it so that we can get back to a place of wellness. Yes, yes. I, I think about when we experience pain, we think, we think that that pain is going to last for a long period of time. Oh, my God, especially <laughs> enormous pain, the loss of someone, the loss of a, a big game. The, you know that loss or you, you made a mistake you know that that feeling but what happens when you hit the game winning shot right you make a great play you do all those great things but you realize in those moments that you never think about that that is going to last sure 100% i mean i think you know a part of the education is we have to unlearn a lot of things like we have this idea that success and greatness and excellence and elite performance happens in the absence of failure and disappointment and setback and and pain right that's not true at all like anybody who is is successful great or elite at what they do has learned how to navigate disappointments setbacks failure and pain, right? Greatness doesn't exist in the absence of those things. It exists because we learn how to move through them, right? We learn the lessons from them. We process them and we continue to move forward. That's true for elite athletes as well. And, and I do think that we, particularly when I think about the intersection of, of, of Black men in sport, there's this notion that strength means you never, ever experience any kind of struggle, that's just not true, right? And so I think, again, we have to unlearn and expand our idea of what strength, success, wellness, excellence means and what it includes, right? And, and it's not a straight line. It can be a very windy road. But again, excellence, greatness, elite performance happens because we learn to navigate difficulties, not because we never experienced them. I, I, again, Doc, you're, you're, you're killing the game. <laughs> and I and I love that because I, I think about some of the things that I, I, I listen to and there are a couple of podcasts that I listen to as, as well as this one. And one of the guests on my favorite show, Rich Roll, talked about just the ability to do hard things. Sure. And like literally what it does psychologically to us when we do hard things, fail and we continue to do hard things. That warm, that warm bed sure. feels really good on a court. But when you've got to go out and do four or five, 10 miles in 40 degree weather, because that's that's it. I'm not I'm not going below 40. Right. That's pain. Uh, that yeah, sounds painful. Yeah, I'm getting on a bike. I'm like, <laughs> yeah, anything below 40. Jesus. Yeah. Yeah. Correct. I, I, I still got my New Orleans blood. Mm -hmm. But 
I just remind myself, like when I don't want to go or when I need to sit in the discomfort, I just say to myself, do hard things because, you know, and you can talk to this more eloquently than I can, like the science ar around doing difficult things and the science around failure, what it does to you. Yeah, but let's think about it. Like, what is the learning process? It is pushing ourselves beyond a limit that we think currently exists, right? It is it is by definition doing something new, right, that we may not have done before, right? And doing that new thing means that we're not going to know exactly how to do it when we do it the first time, right? Like, that is the learning process. It is adding to your repertoire and doing things that were previously unfamiliar, to you, right? And so when we think about learning, when we think about growth, right? Like it involves a wide gamut of experiences. And again, I think we have to not only unlearn some of the things that we've learned, but I also think um, we have to expand our definition of what success looks like. You said to yourself, you say, I do difficult things. Like I can do difficult things. And you absolutely can. And I also think we have to celebrate all the wins, right? You can't, it's, it, it can be deflating to just celebrate at the end of my journey, right? But if I celebrate all along the way, right? So maybe in, in, in cycling in that 40 degree weather, like maybe I didn't get the time that I wanted, but I completed the workout, right? Like that's a win. I can count that win and build on those, right? I think we have to expand what a win looks like. And, and I know people sometimes talk about small wins and big wins. For me, it's just a win because look, if I win by one point or 50, it's not, the win isn't rated any higher. It's still just one win. So you just right. count the win that you have, right? And I think that too builds our confidence, right? That builds our sense of, um, the sense of agency in ourselves that, to believe that we can do something, right? It keeps us motivated, Right. And it allows us to adjust our goals as needed as we're working towards some some longer term destination. Right. So. Celebrating the moments, doing the difficult things helps to build that internal sense of confidence, resilience, um, motivation. And it helps us in the pursuit, the ongoing pursuit of our goals, which are all mental skills that help us to move forward in our, in our quest for excellence and performance. It's funny that you say that because I got on the treadmill this morning and my goal was to make sure that I did 3.25 miles. Mm -hmm. And it was a struggle. I've been playing with my, with my nutrition. I've been playing with how I fuel and you know, I got to three miles and I was, I was, I was tired, right? but I knew what the goal was. And so Previously, Doc, and I'm not perfect. And so revolution, as you know, that, you know, I talk about my feelings all the time here on the show, but the goal was 3.25 miles. I could stop right there at three miles because I've run three miles. Sure. And like you said, I had to then revisit what the, you know, what a win looked like. Mm -hmm. The goal was 3.25 miles. So I've run three miles already. What's, what's wrong with me doing a quarter of a mile warm down? Right. Walking. Right. I still achieve, I still achieve my goal. Correct. Right. Which is a win, you know, and mm -hmm. the, the psychology around that, we know the, 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 the neuroscience behind achieving your goals, what happened, what the brain does, the dopamine and endorphins that are secreted sure. when we achieve our goals. Mm -hmm. 
And ultimately, when we fail, we still we still figure out because we want that endorphin and dopamine rush. And so if you're doing hard things and failing, you want to get to that point where, ah, I I, I reach it and then you set new goals. But I've I've over the last couple of months, Doc, um, I've had to revisit that because I was getting mad. I'm not finishing. You know, I can't run as far or as fast as I used to. You know, and I'm, I'm and you're seeing, you know, you, you start watching your timeline. And wow, this bro is running fast, right? Yeah. Oh, wow, this bro is running fast. Or you know what I'm saying? And you're like, well, why am I not running so fast? And then you stop and you can get in your head. Sure, absolutely. 100%. And the, the, the amount of self-talk and the level of self-criticism that we can engage in when we start comparing ourselves to other people or when we start kind of shooting on ourselves, as we sometimes say, or, or using the word about what we can't do, right? That, that self-talk really does start to influence what we believe. Right. And so we, you know, one of the things I say and, and, and is be careful of what you say to yourself because you're always listening. Right. And so I think we really do have to be conscious and extend the same level of compassion towards ourselves that we would readily extend to others. Right. If one of your frat brothers, right, if one of the bros came to you and said, I'm struggling, like I'm having a hard time, I'm not reaching my goals, like I don't feel motivated, I just don't feel like I can do it. You wouldn't say, No, you're right. You can't. Like that's, that's terrible. You would encourage him. Right. You would say, Just, like give yourself props for what you are doing. Keep trying. That same encouragement and positive self-talk that we engage in with others, we need to adopt for ourselves. And also in that, be willing to be flexible and make an adjustment if we need to, right? If I think about, you know, the time that we're in right now, right? We, we have a certain capacity, a certain level of energy that we have and we can expend, um, and I myself, right, like I'm a person who enjoys working out. I haven't worked out a whole lot in the last several months, right? Um, and, and I can get down on myself about that. Why don't you have the energy to do that? But I have to remind myself, part of my energy is being devoted to living through a pandemic, right? Health and race-based, race right? And navigating the work and the job that I still do. So if I, if I don't have the energy to do everything that I did pre-pandemic, that's okay, right? Like that's actually... Um, human <laughs> because my energy is being devoted and split up in different ways now, but I can still give myself credit for the things that I am capable of doing. And that too is another kind of reframe. Instead right. of focusing on what you can't do, identify what you can do and invest your energy there. Mm. Identify what you can do and invest your energy there. Yes. Keep trying, understanding that you, you're going to fail. You're going to fail if you're doing hard things and that's okay and it is how you talk to yourself which i which i love revolutionaries and what what dr kinsa is saying is that we can create this negative self-talk we can say you know you're not good enough as i say you're not good enough and you're not handsome enough you're not strong enough you can't you know do the things that others or on the flip side of this you know what i'm trying i'm moving forward this goal of being one percent better each week Sure. And you get to define what that 1% is, right? I think that's the other really important piece is I can look and, and on social media at my feed or whatever the case may be and compare myself to others, but I don't know the details of their situation that's allowing them to do whatever they're capable of doing, just like no one knows the details of my situation. So it becomes really problematic for me just to compare an outcome without understanding the process, right? Because it's the process that becomes really important. And that's where you have control. And so um, 
you know, we, we always think about comparing ourselves to others because somebody else is doing better. But you comparing yourself to others sometimes could be you putting a limit on yourself because you might be capable of far more than someone else. But because you're you're establishing the limit for yourself based on what somebody else is doing, you might not even give yourself an opportunity to push as far as you actually could go. Right. And so I really think that part of one percent better is it's your one percent better than your percentage from yesterday. Not your one percent better as compared to anybody else's, but you are competing against you. Right. And pushing through whatever roadblock obstacles are getting in the way of you moving forward. That's where the real competition is. Revolution is, you, you know, this is why you tune into this show, <laughs> because each week you get to hear some of the dopest people in the world, you know, dopest people of color in the world talk about how to revolutionize your life. And I think about all the things that Dr. Kinsa has just spit to you and thinking about that 1%, getting 1% better each day, thinking about who's on you. If you're looking at your social media, thinking about, hey, that's your life. I don't know all of the things that have you going on to get you to this point. I only know what this going on with Charles and Dr. Kensa that get me to this point. And it's okay because if you keep doing hard things, and I'll say that revolutionaries, you will continue to grow. It is when you sit in that comfort, the warmness <laughs> of your comfortability that you don't grow. If you're still lifting 35 pounds, right? 10 years later, you haven't done a hard thing because it's comfortable. Ooh, yes, it feels good. If you're still, you know, running that same three miles on that same loop every day, guess what? Your brain, your brain is on autopilot. It's not doing any work. It's not. It's not because it knows. It it it, know, it knows the wind. It knows how it feels on your feet. It knows, you know, what your time is going to be when you get around this circle. It isn't challenged. Turn around. Run the route backwards. Run a new route because what happens is and doc you can confirm this is that our brains still have the ability to create new synapses right and neurons to fire right and so when you have the ability to do hard things and to get out in environments that are different from what you have experienced revolutionaries your mind continues to grow and we even think about alzheimer's and dementia and community right those who have community longer in life are less likely to have the, the debilitating effects of dementia and Alzheimer's, those people who continue to exercise and continue to push themselves right in those communities mm -hmm. also are less likely to have debilitating diseases that are going to hamper them from being or living the life that they would like. So think about that. Right. Think about pushing yourself, doing hard things, going a different way, finding some new tribes that are going to allow you right to be your best self, right, to revolutionize who you are. Like I just have one last question. I know we want to talk about some other things that we talked about in the green room sure. that if my revolutionaries are listening and, and they're theoretically training for a triathlon, <laughs> <laughs> what would you say to them? You know, some tips and strategies that you might give to them as they prepare for that day. Yeah. So, so I want to, the, the do hard things, I want to comment on that right quick um, because yes, you can continue to do hard things, but as you do hard things, those hard things become easier. Right. I think that's an important point to make as well. And and certainly if you want to continue to expand beyond your three miles and run five and then run seven, that's a goal you can set for yourself. But but sometimes just maintaining the three might be where you are. And that's OK, too. Right. I don't think we give enough credit to maintaining where we are. I think we live in a society that constantly stresses, well, what else are you doing? Well, what are you doing next? Well, how are you pushing yourself? How are you challenging? And I think absolutely 
if that's something that you want to do, that's great, but don't underestimate the power of maintaining, right? Because that becomes really important too. And as I think about how you would prepare yourself for the day of a triathlon, I think that would include a combination of pushing yourself, right, at times, but it also is going to include maintaining the progress that you have made. And so, I mean, I, I understand from working with runners who, who engage in these kind of long distance races that it really does become a battle of the wills at a certain point because the physical pain kicks in and, and you really have to dig deep, right, in order to go. So the first thing I would say is like, if you can train with a group, like you just said, training with other people makes training a bit more enjoyable and it can push you. It gives you kind of a boost. The other thing I would say is just kind of set your plan, your training plan, like have have your plan laid out for how you are going to get from where you are now to race day, right? And in that plan, don't just include, or in addition to including what you're going to do in terms of your mileage or your nutrition or your recovery, right? First of all, include recovery in your plan, but also think from a mental standpoint, like how are you going to continue to focus on your self-talk? as you move through your training plan? How are you going to gauge your motivation and and continue to stay connected to your why and your purpose for engaging in this activity, right? You can set goals and goals are great. What's even more important than goals are habits, right? So what are you doing on a daily basis to help you in moving toward race day? And another activity that I would say could be really helpful is mindfulness. And some people are like, well, why would I do mindfulness in preparation for my triathlon? Because mindfulness is an activity that is designed to help you develop the skill of directing your thoughts, of attending to what's important and discarding the rest. And when you are running a triathlon, I imagine there are times when you need to have a focus on what's really important and to be able to silence the noise of whatever else might be around you. And so developing and cultivating a mindfulness practice could actually be a really good way to train your mind to be ready for the task of running 26 points. I appreciate I appreciate all of those tips. I will incorporate them over the next couple of weeks as I prepare for this track. Sure. And in <laughs> so, terms of uh, mindfulness, there are a couple of apps out there that are good. Insight Time or Calm, Headspace. And if you're not familiar with the practice, like certainly there are apps that can guide you through it. And they have some exercises that are geared for runners. So that could that would be a really good way. I would say don't don't ignore your mental training as a part of your physical training as you're preparing for the race. Right. I just want to give a shout out to our brother Julio Rivera uh, with Liberate app. Yes, and Liberate as well. Yes. Yeah, it, it, exactly. For us, by us, this brother is doing dope and amazing things. We're going to hear from him soon here on the show. But Liberate is one of those things that will also, you know, as we think about meditations that are created by us that really understand us and our our trauma and our health and our mental health. Mm-hmm. Liberate is doing amazing things. And I'll add one to that, Shine. The Shine app as well is created by us. And that is one that that also speaks to daily meditations, daily activities, journaling, gratitude, check-ins. So that too is one that, that I would recommend. Doc, I appreciate you. Um, one of the things, and like I said, my 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 good frat brother, Commander Corey Doolittle of the U.S. Navy, good, good brother. I'm just so grateful for what these brothers bring to me and hopefully I can give something back to them. Uh, the joy that I have when I see them um, at the recording of this show, I was supposed to ride with brother Doolittle on Sunday, extremely excited doc uh, about this, about this ride. Cause I, I have really, because of the cold have not been on my bike mm-hmm. and 
got up really early, fueled, ready to go, packed my bag, got my bike, put it in the car, everything, ran back and got my phone, excited, listening to my, you know, listening to my motivational music as I ride the 40 minutes out to meet the commander. Dedication. Dedication. Ready. I mean, ready to go. Ready. I mean, ready to go. I get there. I pull my bike out and then I say, where's my bag? Mm-hmm. I left my bag 40 minutes away at home. And, yep. you know, the bros have not let that go. No, they, they won't. They won't no, no. <laughs> as, as one as 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 my Neo said, piss poor preparation. And we will leave that. We will <laughs> um, leave it there. <laughs> yes, we will leave it there. And so I was disappointed. Um, one of the things that uh, the commander asked is that, you know, as we think about sports psychology and, and, and its marrying of mental health, and we're thinking about what's going on with our athletes across the country when it comes to our the racial pandemic that you and I have talked about, mm-hmm. that can take a toll on who they are as athletes. Um, what advice would you give them as they're thinking about taking on these racial justice issues? And the backlash and you know blowback that some of them and many of them are receiving. I think about like LeBron has become the 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 whipping boy because he stands up. And I hate to say that that you know these white dudes are coming for him because he's he has stood up and said racial justice is who I am. My my athletic status allows me this platform and I'm going to take it, which I which I totally agree with. But at home this backs like this backlash may you know, have some traumatic impact. What advice would you give to these athletes? What advice would you give to, I mean, athletes along the spectrum from high school to college to uh, the pros, how do they navigate this? Yeah. So I think, you know, again, this goes back to something I said earlier, when I think about navigating the racial pandemic, and I think about particularly those who who are in the world of sport, kind of navigating it in a very public way, um, we have to be very clear, right? They are Engaging in advocacy and activism, not because this is a, a, just a hot topic, but they identify with these issues because they identify with the, the cultural group that is being impacted and that has been victimized, right, in, in the, the videos of racialized violence that we've seen in the, um, you know, horrendous acts that we all witnessed. If we didn't witness it because we chose not to watch the video, it was certainly available to us last year. If we think about Ahmaud Arbery and George Floyd and we think about Breonna Taylor, right? And so, again, they are identifying because they see themselves, they see their relatives, they see those in their community reflected in these individuals. And so this is personal for them, right? They're not advocating just because they're athletes. They're advocating because they are people, right, who identify with this community. So, again, I think that's the first thing is recognizing athletes are people. And sport is not this neutralized uh, aspect of bubble of society where the ills and the sociocultural and political climate don't exist, right? It exists there as well. So there are people who are responding to the world around them in the same way that all of us are responding to the world around them. And they are citizens who have a right to express their voice and utilize their voice in in all kinds of ways, but you're absolutely correct. Uh, Witnessing race-based stress, right? witnessing and and experiencing that kind of racialized violence is traumatic 
right? It can have an impact on us in the same way that vicarious trauma has an impact on folks. It can impact your esteem. It can impact the way you navigate the world, right? Feeling as though you're being perceived as a threat. So it can bring and breed feelings of hopelessness, despair. It can breed anger. It can breed the sense of a foreshortened future, right? Because I'm seeing people who look like me um, with these premature deaths at the hands of others, right? Simply because of their race. So, so certainly there is a, a traumatic response that can happen, but I also don't want us to underestimate the resilience of these individuals and of these communities of color as well. Like certainly I think about black people and, and the, the violence that we witnessed and saw. And I also think about the, the strength though that came from being able to raise your voice and call and demand change, right? And and having a community around you in which that supports you in doing that, right? I think about um, the Asian American community now who's raising their voice in response to the crimes that we are seeing against their community. And so certainly it has an effect. In, and, and what I would say to someone who is engaging in activist or, or advocacy work is to be very intentional about taking care of yourself in that process as well. Right. Um, I do think that if you are in, in if, regardless of what level you're in. Right. Like certainly you have to understand that everybody is not coming to this conversation with the same level of interest in making change. So you have to know that everybody's not going to agree with what you say. You may experience some backlash. But again, I think for those who are standing up and using their voice, they are less concerned about the dissenters and the ones who don't want them to speak. And they are more connected to their purpose and their reason for speaking. And that's what allows them to stand up. I think we can see that with the, the, the women of the WNBA who are always on the front lines, right? Certainly we think about those in other pro sports that we've seen, but also collegiate sport and high school sports. So if, if someone chooses to stand up, my, my suggestion would be stand up and be firm and strong and clear about why you're standing, understanding that everybody's not going to stand with you, right? But drawing strength from those who do. Right. Drawing strength from those who do support you and also engaging in self-care, knowing when to step back. Right. And take a breath. Right. And recharge your own energy. Right. Knowing that you don't have to respond to every post. You don't have to watch every video. You don't have to read every story because managing and moderating our information intake is another way that we can take care of ourselves. Um, and so, again, it's personal choice in terms of if people want to engage in activism and advocacy. But I also want to say there's no one way to do that. So some people may be out in the marches. Some people may post on social media. Others may choose to engage in their activism and their advocacy work in a less public way. And that's okay too. I think we have to allow space for folks to step into this space um, and this, this arena in the ways that feel comfortable to them so that they can take care of themselves while also advocating for the change that we so desperately want and need to see. Mm, I totally agree. And, and, You've, you've dropped, again, some great strategies that our revolutionaries who are athletes who are listening as, as they think about what they're going to do uh, when it comes to advocating, standing up, you know, being that voice for the voiceless all the time. If I think about my, my brother Charles Dickens in, in Austin, you know, as he talked about on the show, his ability to be the voice for the voiceless. There are many people who have struggled you know, have experienced racism and discrimination on down the isms of intersectionality. And sure. it is, it is people who stand up, who use their privilege in this, you know, in situations where people 
haven't been able to use their voice, who are seeing this backlash. And it does take its toll. I've, I talked to one of my good, again, the, one of my good frat brothers and friends, Leon Kiesing. We were just talking about that feeling of being radicalized. And because you listen to things in an echo chamber, and I, I, I love my mother tremendously, Doc. But my mom listens to CNN and NBC, MSNBC all day long. And mm -hmm. so and she's on her phone. And so her echo chamber is everything that those channels and her stream, because the algorithms have given her what she's like, what she's looking at. And I found myself, even, you know, as the election was coming and after the election, all the things, particularly after January 6th, this, 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 this radicalized feeling, I could feel it in my, I could feel it in my, you know, physiological nature. I could, sure. I, I could see it in how I was interacting. I would see don't tread on me. And I would, I would have this physiological feeling or I would see a Trump 2020 when the election was over. Right. Mm -hmm. And this physiological feeling. And I said to myself one day, I was like, this is what happened. This is how angry white men come about because we don't go out and seek anything out of our echo chamber. And, you know, it, 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 it it can really sit with us because our mind will begin to turn like, like this is white. And I found myself having to sit back and say, if you don't have the mental fortitude to move through this and to talk it out and have the, the, the capacity to talk to other people, this is where we are in our country. Yeah, it's a it's a really um, difficult and 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 hard time, right? Because we quite literally saw acts of racism taking place. We felt the division that was existing, right? And we saw it kind of as it was unfolding, like we were watching it unfold, and at the same time living through it, right, simultaneously. And so, absolutely, I think when you um, if you are only exposed to one chain of thought, that is the only chain of thought that you're going to think is valid, right, and exists, right? But, but I also think, um, so to, to kind of go back to the question you asked a moment ago, like what's the, the advice you would give to those who are engaging in activism, be able to answer the question of why are you doing this, right? Not why is everybody else doing this? Why do you think this needs to be done? Don't recite to me what you've heard repeated on every news channel that you happen to watch or every social media platform that you happen to read and follow, but be able to answer for yourself. Why, why is this important to me? Why am I doing this? Because that allows you to actually have to pause and think through what you, how you want to contribute to this moment in whatever way that is, but you really have to be that's a personal choice and decision. And I think what happens is sometimes we, the personal choice gets pushed to the side and we just engage in the group think mm -hmm. and we just follow the group. So I really do think, one, um, being able to answer that question, like, why am I doing this? What, what, how do I want to contribute to this cause? But I also think you, you make a good point of being open to having conversations with folks who might have a different vantage point and or perspective from you, right? And I, I say that because, look, I, I I understand that there may be some some people where you may feel too divided, right? And and like I'm not willing to put myself in a situation that feels unsafe in order to have a conversation. So I, I respect that, but I do think that we we it helps us. It only helps us if we're open to hearing other people's thoughts and other people's perspectives. And just very quickly, like this is the, 
the example that I will give to illustrate this, and of course it uses an elephant in this analogy because I mean, why not? Um, but it's like this. It's like if you and I were standing on opposite sides of the elephant and let's say I'm standing at the back, you're standing at the front. So you see the tusk, you see the, the trunk, you see the eyes, and you're telling me how beautiful these ivory tusks are, right? That the elephant has. And I'm standing at the back of the elephant. We're both very close. And I'm saying, what are you talking about, right? I don't see a trunk. I don't see tusks. Like all I see is a tail and very wrinkly skin, right? And you're saying, what, what are you talking about? I, these ivory, the ivory is beautiful. We could stand there all day long and we could keep saying the same thing. And both of us would be right because we're both trapped in what is right in front of us. And that's all we can see, right? So multiple truths can coexist at the same time. But what needs to happen, right? Both of us needs to take a step back, right? And then we need to take a step to the side because now I can see the trunk and the tusks that you were talking about. You can see the tail that I was talking about, but we now can see a large part of the elephant that both of us were missing because we were so locked in to what was right in front of our eyes that we only could see, right? And so that's what I think needs to happen as we think about conversations related to social justice, right? Because a lot of times we feel like if we are increasing rights for others, that means we're taking rights away from somebody else. By definition, that's not what inclusion is. Inclusion is making more room for everybody, right? But again, injustice is creating more equity, not taking anything away. But in order to see all of the elephant, right? We got to be willing to step back from our positions and step to the side so that I can see, we can both see what one another we're seeing and we can see the pieces that we were missing. Yes. 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 And that's all, that's, that's what I'm keep saying. Yes, it, exactly. <laughs> and I, I love the analogy and that analogy brings me into the segue of this question because I, I think, you know, in, in seeing, you know, we talked about in the green room doc, you know, how, black men and black women come together. Mm-hmm. One thing about this show is that I want to make sure that the people who are listening to this show, whether it's men or women, um, transgender, LGBTQIA, whoever's listening to the show understands that we're giving them something to think about. Right. And I think about ultimately this show is for and about men of color. But as, as I think about women's history month, and our, our ability to think about the dopeness, right? And I've got this dope sister here with me on, on this show. And, and revolutionaries, you, you heard the show, right? You, you heard this. <laughs> you know, I just sat back. I just, I, I just sat back and let this dope sister drive, drive this show. I think about this one question, this one question as a, as a, as a man, right? And I'm, I'm, not, I'm not even going to say, I'm not even going to put the other caveats on this. But as a man, and I think about, how black women have put us and this country on their back and said, come on, let's go. How do we show up better for you? Ooh, well, you have to, you, you, I mean, you don't have to take a big, you have to take a big look like that. I mean, <laughs> but I did though. Right. Because I think the fact that I took that breath it in part is reflective of the answer. I don't know how often we even ask that question. Right. So to even have a moment where the question is being posed of how can we show up for you is a shift, right? That's a revolution. That's a change, right? In the way that we have um, historically 
treated the strength of, of Black women. I think sometimes what we have a tendency to do is, of course, we label them strong and and uh, strong Black woman or Black girl magic. And yes, we are strong and magical, but we're also human, right? And I think sometimes focusing on the strength, focusing on the magic um, creates a situation where people uh, are blind to the humanness, right? And so it it creates a situation in where it, it may be hard for us to get our needs met because people don't see us as having them because we're strong, we're magical, right? Like you said, like Black women have shouldered um, a lot of different responsibilities, expectations, and burdens and carried them. And, and I was literally having a conversation with someone last week when they were saying, you know, Black women are strong and y'all make it all look easy. And so, you know, we we see that. And I was like, please don't be confused, just because we make it look easy, look easy does not mean that it is, right? So even asking the question of how can we show up, I think is a recognition of um, what we may carry, right? And so I think, I mean, I don't think there's an easy answer to that, but I do think um, thinking about the Black women that may be in your life and, and, and maybe asking them what support might look like and feel like, right? asking them how you could show up or what you could do, right? That would make them feel cared for and nurtured, right? Because that is what we tend to extend to others is care and nurturing and support without question. So having someone to extend that in our direction would be a shift, right? And instead of trying to figure it out, I think sometimes the easiest thing to do is ask. Now she might be shocked and give you a big sigh and and take a deep breath like I did as well. But I mean, I think we have to, we have to be willing to ask what they need and then give it to them, (laughs) right? Like ask what they need and then give it. But I also think um, acknowledging the efforts that they make when they make it. Like, you know, we, we have that phrase of giving people their flowers. I think we have to be intentional about giving Black women their flowers and letting them know that they are seen in their humanity, regardless of the strength that they possess, that we still know that they have needs and they need to be nurtured and there's a softness and there's a tenderness. We have to allow space for Black women to be soft and to be tender and to to have needs, right? Um, And to, to be nurtured, right? As opposed to simply being a pillar of strength. So I think we have to allow more room for their whole experience, right? And and to support them in that. And I think the brothers really could could be instrumental in that, um, in simply asking and showing up in ways that Black women say they need you to show up. You heard that, my you heard that, brothers. <laughs> Ask the question, and don't assume. No, don't assume. Don't don't assume that you. No, one of the biggest flaws that I made in a relationship was I assumed that this was my partner's love language, right? Mm-hmm. All along, thinking that this was her love language, and I did all of those things to give her that love language. Well, it wasn't. Right. And ironically, it wasn't until we had a love language conversation mm-hmm. that our relationship wholly changed. Right. I mean, literally wholly changed because I was like, oh, damn, I have not been doing anything that you need. Right. I actually was actually giving you what I need, expecting, thinking. Correct. And that's what a lot of us do, right? A lot of us give and try to offer the support that we would want to receive from other folks, right? And that that could match up with what she's wanting and needing, but it might not, right? And so I think we have to be willing to 
again, ask and then deliver based on what they said. And and let me be also very clear. We are very good at saying, no, I'm good. I don't need anything. I'm fine. The brother, the brothers are too. We're used to saying that, right? Because um, what we may not be used to is somebody asking us what we need and actually following through with it. So, you know, again, I say, ask. That's the best way to know. And then follow through. And if somebody says, I don't need anything, still think then you might be able to think about well what would be a nice gesture anyway and you can follow through with that doc this has been amazing and um i know that you have to save the world there are athletes and people <laughs> who need your dope services i i look i know your clients in atlanta and now with being able to teleconference you have clients all over the country you know if you don't know this sister please go out google dr kinsa gunther tell them where they can find more about you so I do have a website if you just kind of want the, the professional overview there. So that's at www.drkenza.com. Um, you could also find me on LinkedIn, Dr. Kenza Gunter, my name. Um, and then I'm also in the land of Twitter um, at Dr. Kenza, D-R-K-E-N-S-A is where you can find. And if you so choose to follow, follow. You need to, you need to follow this sister. And this is an amazing conversation, revolutionaries. She has dropped so much, and I cannot wait to go back. And I hope the bros, you know, Corey, I hope I asked the good questions for you that will allow you to be right that better cyclist. I hope Arthur Graham does not listen to this because we don't need the Terminator getting any more tips that drive us crazy when we are <laughs> on the cycle. But that brother makes us better. He makes us do hard things. Um, but sometimes we just want to maintain. Well, and here's the thing, right? Like, just because he gets the sense, people to get the sense you can get them too. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> exactly. But he is definitely a dope brother. Uh, just look, just got uh, promoted in the army. So congratulations to you, brother Arthur. Congratulations. congratulations to our dear brother Jahari, who was also promoted colonel. Um, and I want to make sure that they get their, you know, they get their roses. They are tremendous friends. Uh, of mine and of our cycling group and I just am tremendously grateful for them I am tremendously grateful for you this you know and I'm hoping that we can continue to have a relationship because when you meet dope people you want to surround yourself with and can you know surround yourself and continue to be a part of that is if there's any way that we can help you at what's your revolution any way that I can help you continue with your revolution please let us know and revolutionaries go check her out make sure you listen to the entire show because it's super dope and we'll continue with our four-year anniversary uh shows that's coming up some of my favorite guests uh think about a cry among men author steve erskine brown look forward to that show and look i want you to have a great week look for the light look for the light look for the ways to do hard things and look for the ways to maintain and talk to yourselves in loving ways revolutionaries those are the words of Dr. Kinsa Gunther. I appreciate you. I wish you well and always be able to answer what we think here is the most thought-provoking question of your life. What's your revolution? Thank you. Take care, everyone. Peace. 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 Peace.